All right. The, one of the worst fights my husband and I had in our first year of marriage happened in a laundromat. Oh, yeah, in a laundromat. We were, one minute, blissfully joking, folding clothes, you know, hanging out, having a great time on a Friday night, because that's what newlyweds do, if you're us. And uh, so it turns out that, um, well, it all went south when my husband innocently said to me, you know, you're folding that T-shirt wrong. Now... Let me just say that a better woman than I, uh, a more mature woman than I, might have said, oh, really, show me what you mean by that. I was neither better nor mature in that moment, and I believe something like, excuse me, came out of my mouth, Uh, followed by, where is the handbook that shows the right way to fold a a T-shirt? Now, you can imagine, this went downhill fast fast. Uh, Mothers were brought into the conversation. It got ugly. (laughs) And the truth is, we were both willing to sacrifice a really good evening to make our point about the correct way to fold a t-shirt. How ridiculous is that? And yet, and yet, 27 years later, I can still feel myself, as I tell the story, want to make it clear that I was right. (laughs) Can I get an amen in the house? Right? Our ego does weird things to us. Our pride and our wanting to be right, even if it's about something as minimal and trivial as folding a t-shirt, sucks us in. And this morning, I want to look at one of, I believe, the most tragic stories of the New Testament and the ways that pride and arrogance end up blinding people who actually really want to follow God. This is not an easy story, and I'm going to invite us this morning to Maybe if we can, let go and soften ourselves and be open to some possibilities that God might want to challenge us a little this morning. So if you are new here this morning, we've been walking through the book of Acts, and we've arrived at chapter 7. And uh, last week, Pastor Johnny introduced us to a man named Stephen. Stephen was a a Hellenistic Jew. He was part of the followers of the way, um, and he was selected for leadership because, as Stephen and the community recognized, he was a man of faith who was filled with the Spirit. And he's a passionate man. He has been captivated by Jesus, and he just can't be quiet about that. He ends up talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the things that the people of God have been watching for. And he talks and he's convinced that there are uh, fulfillment of promises, that God is no longer bound to a building for worship, that in Jesus has, God has come near. And then, not just that, but with the coming of the Holy Spirit, now God lives within us. And so worship is 
bigger and broader than just coming to the temple. God has come and dwelt within us. And Stephen is captivated by that reality. And so as you can imagine, he ends up in some dialogue, we'll call it that for right now, some arguments with some of the good Jewish people who actually care a lot about the temple, where they would gather to worship. You, if you were here last week, Johnny introduced them to you as well. They were the freedmen. And they were, in fact, men and women who had been slaves at one time and had become free. And they had converted to following God. And they were people who loved the temple because they had experienced firsthand, right, the freedom and joy that God brought. And they were zealous for God. Because one of the things I think it's easy to do is to miss how much they loved God. But their picture of what it meant was that you had to come to the temple. The temple was the center of what it meant to worship God. And so you can imagine there begins to be some tension and some conflict between Stephen and between the freedmen, they were called. So this finally comes to a head. And they end up taking Stephen. They seize him. They bring him to the supreme court of the religious world at that time called the Sanhedrin. And they charge him with dishonoring the Old Testament. And they accuse him of trying to destroy the temple. And that's where we pick up the story. And in fact, the next thing that happens is that the high priest asks Stephen, are these charges true? Are these charges true? Is it true that you disregard the Old Testament and you're trying to destroy the temple? Now, Stephen is a man after my heart. He's a preacher because he can't answer a single yes or no question with one word. He goes on to preach the longest sermon in the whole book of Acts, 58 verses long. And uh, it's quite a story. What he does is he begins by retelling their story, the story of the people of God. He says over and over again, let me tell you, let me reframe what the story is about. He starts and he talks about Abraham, and then he talks about Joseph. He talks about Moses, and he raps with Joshua and David and Solomon, and he really goes the whole breadth of the Old Testament. Because part of what he's saying is, no, 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 no. I'm not dishonoring the Old Testament. I'm actually, I want to help you understand it in a fuller way. Now, out of that sermon, two themes arise, okay? Now, the first theme, and by the way, because it's 58 verses, I'm not reading the whole thing for you. If you want to read it, I'd encourage you to read it this afternoon because it's really remarkable. But the first theme that he emphasizes over and over and over again is that God has been at work patiently pursuing and rescuing people for a long time. This is who God is. That starting with Abraham, who he called and chose, not because Abraham was a magnificent man. In fact, he just picked Abraham. And then he used Joseph to rescue his family from the famine. And not just his family, but 
the whole country of Egypt. And then later he would use Moses to deliver the Israelites from slavery, to give people living words, he describes it, that they could use to know who God was and how to live. And later he would use Joshua to bring Israelites into their own land over and over and over again. Stephen says, you have to understand this God that you love is committed and he is patient and he is rescuing people from darkness into light, from slavery into freedom. This is the nature of who God is. It's a great sermon so far, right? And I think we need to know that. But the second theme... The second theme that Stephen weaves through this story is how over and over and over again, people reject God and his representatives. That while God pursues over and over and over again, God's people keep rejecting him. Now, there's lots of reasons that Stephen says God's people reject him. One is that they're jealous, perhaps, of his leaders. Other times, that's what happened when jo- with Joseph's brothers, right? They were jealous of Joseph. Other times, they're not paying attention. They don't recognize initially that Moses has been sent to deliver them. At one point, he says, they preferred to trust in their own efforts and ideas. They liked being able to control their image of God, rather than having to serve the living God. You'll remember that's why in the edge of the wilderness, the Israelites build a golden cow, which sounds ridiculous to us, right? But they're, they don't want to have to worship a God they can't see and touch, and so they build a, representat- a representative of God, which is not that much different than what we do, right? We end up worshiping our work and the things that we can build and accomplish. So part of it is they'd rather do that than this God that they can't see. But fundamentally, sometimes it just comes down to they don't want to obey. And because of those things, um, throughout the story of God, we have this pursuit and running, pursuit and running. Sometimes not just pursuit and running, we have pursuit and push back from the people of God. So Stephen is telling the story. He said, this is our history. This is who we are. We have a God who loves us, and we resist him. We have a God who loves us, and we resist him. And of course, he's coming to today. And he says, you know what? The same thing is true today. In fact, at this moment, he turns and looks at this religious trial and council, these freedmen who are passionate about God, and he says, "Uh, I hate to tell you this, but you are not on the side of the equation you think you are. He says to them, in fact, here are his exact words, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Ooh, that's a little harsh. And it's interesting, when I was studying it this week, I was kind of drawn to that phrase, stiff-necked people. Uh, Because I was like, you know, I wonder what he's trying to communicate with that. And it turns out it's an agriculture image. Um, It's from 
the days in, in uh, agriculture pre-machinery, you would hook two oxen together with a yoke. And then you would pl- put a plow behind them. And those oxen, this worked if they both agreed to work together and be led. But if you have an oxen who doesn't want to, guess what they do? They go like this. And then they won't pull and they won't move. They do this as a way of passively, aggressively, or just kind of aggressively resisting the plow and the farmer. Uh, Another image of this would be actually uh, this. Or a two-year-old, pick your poison, right? That place inside where we stiffen up and go, "Uh uh-uh, nope, nope, not doing that. Our daughter had a little stiff-neckedness in her. Um, (laughs) At one point when she was growing up, she and I were having a tangle about whether she should sit in her car seat. And finally, uh, of course, much tears later, she was buckled in. And as I got in the van, she said, I'm standing up on the inside. So I just want to suggest, any of us standing up on the inside today, right? We look like we're here being all good Christian, but there's a part of us, if we're honest, that buckles up. And so Stephen concludes this fiery sermon where he's been telling the story of God, right? And he's been saying, this is our story. And he uses our language actually all the way through. He says, this is our story. This is our picture. Please don't do this. Now at this moment, they have a choice. They have a choice. Now, what are their options? That's not, a, by the way, a hypothetical question. What are their options at this moment? What could they do? They could accept the teaching. They could say, oh, that's a new way of looking at the scriptures. I should check into that, right? That's what most of us think we would want to do, right? What else could they do? They could fight back. They could dig in. Uh, spoiler alert, guess what they do? Let's, let's, uh, let's look at the next part of the passage. Uh, whoop, back one more, I think. Or not. Let me read it from my notes, and then we'll go to the next one. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. See, they are so convinced that they are right that they are unwilling to even entertain the possibility that there's something they need to learn. When presented with that opportunity for humility and repentance, their pride rises up, just like my pride rose up that day in the laundromat. You aren't going to tell me how to fold a t-shirt. They rise up internally and they go, no. Now, before we get too judgmental of them, let me ask the question, when was the last time you let someone challenge you? 
When was the last time you let someone speak into your life and your worldview? Because I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, Research would say not recently. That one of the dangers right now of who we are together is that we have created echo chambers. You familiar with this term? Right? That more and more we are unwilling to even have conversations with people who think differently than us. And so we shut it down and we unfriend them on Facebook and we watch only the news we agree with and we read only the papers and only the opinions. And it becomes this toxic blend of ego and power and a sense of righteousness. And that's fine. No, it's really not. I was going to try and make a way that that could be okay. Because here's the secret that I want you to understand today. And I know this is going to come as a shock to many of you. You are not God. What? Really? But that's what's true. We are all broken. We are all sinful. We all have blind spots and things that we don't see. Jeremiah t- Uh, says it this way. Our hearts are deceitful. Not only do we have blind spots, but then we have a tendency to want to justify our blind spots. To, in fact, say that, you know what, really, actually, God's on my side. And we find rational ways to rationalize. It happens so, so subtly. But it's true about every single one of us. For example, I think often of an example, probably more than 10 years ago, I sat with a, a gentleman who was seeking some pastoral counsel. And he started the meeting by saying, God has told me to leave my wife. I was like, oh, really? God told you that, huh? And so I asked some more questions because, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to listen a little bit. Maybe, maybe she's abusive or maybe... There's, turns out, at the bottom of it, he just wasn't happy anymore. And he had framed it as that God had told him it was time to leave. Now, see how that happens? We find ways to put God on our side to make it okay to do what we think we ought to do. And part of what I needed to do that day was look at him and say, I don't think that's God. And We talked through, I walked through the scriptures with him and just said, listen, I I think, I don't think that's the voice of God. If you, I don't think that's it. Um, And he then had a choice, right? What was he going to do with that? Because often when we hit those places where someone speaks into our life, we have to choose. Will I lean in and ask God to help create clarity Or will I dig my heels in? I think it's only fair if I'm going to challenge you with this that I have to talk about my stuff, right? And I'll never forget, um, I was probably in my early, mid-30s, and I was working with an older woman who we were meeting weekly. And I had been frustrated, frustrated with my marriage, frustrated with my work, and I had been telling her about that 
And uh, I'll never forget, we were sitting over coffee, and she looked at me, and uh, she said, Suzanne, I think your issue is submission. And uh, she said, I don't think you like to submit. Now, I have to tell you, everything in me went, oh, no, right? No, we're no, no, no. In fact, if anything, I'm too compliant. That was my initial response, right? (laughs) And she said, oh, no, let me just be really clear. You're willing to submit if you agree where things are going, with where things are going. But that's not submission. That's just agreement. Are you willing to follow leaders when you don't trust where they're going? You willing to trust God? Right? And I tell you, I walked away from that meeting so mad. Because there was a part of me that was like, no, that's not true. But fortunately, I had some good people around me who said, you know, you, might, you maybe ought to pray that God would show you if that's true or not. Maybe you ought to slow down and investigate questions. One of them is a friend of mine right down here, my best friend, who looked at me and said, "Mm, she might have a point. It was one of the hardest things to look at myself and realize, I got a pride problem. I got a pride problem. I think I'm... And to begin to have the humility to look at my brokenness. And yet, it's one of the best things that has happened to me. The, the passage that we had up for just a minute ago is a, a verse from Proverbs 15. Whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Here from Isaiah, in repentance and rest is your salvation. See, if we understand the reality that I am broken, period, that I don't see perfectly, period, that I am going to be bent towards deceiving myself, period. Well, then I can actually have a posture that welcomes correction. I can begin to have the humility to say, I'm going to need help, folks. I'm going to need help because I'm not going to see it all. And so bring it on. Help me grow. Help me get better. I can assume that kind of posture instead of this Digging in my heels. But the difficult part is those words often come from other people. Right? And oftentimes people we don't expect. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way. God has willed that we should seek and find God's living word in the testimony of other Christians, in the mouths of other human beings. See, That's the hard part, is I have to be willing to let other people be right and imagine the possibility that I'm wrong. And here's the frightening part. The passage goes on to say, actually, at this they covered their ears And yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at Stephen, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. They are so sure of their righteousness 
they feel justified in their violence. They are so sure they are right that they justify stoning a man. And again, before we get too judgmental, check your Facebook page. Check your Twitter account. Pay attention to the shows you're watching and listen to the language of our leaders. Watch a political ad, for goodness sakes. As a culture, we are toxic right now, and we have allowed our sense of rightness to justify verbal violence against one another. And by the way, I know it would be easy to say, well, it's just words. It's just words. Jesus' answer to that, by the way, was, you have heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say to you, the bar is higher for believers. If you actually call your sister or your brother a name, you have committed murder in your heart. That's the hard truth. Paul says it this way in Colossians. He says, this is how we should treat one another, what it means to be a believer. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with righteousness? Nope. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility, patience. Those are the things that actually ought to characterize us. C.S. Lewis says it this way, A proud person is always looking down on things and people. But the trouble is, as long as you are looking down at others, you cannot see what is above you. We miss God when we spend our whole time doing this. Friends, this is a sobering passage. I found myself all week long wrestling with it. It caught me that in this passage, people who love God basically chose to believe their rightness instead of being open to being corrected. So I want to ask you this morning, when was the last time you considered the possibility you were wrong? When was the last time? When was the last time you sought out people of faith who disagree with you and actually listened to them? When was the last time you considered the possibility that the people who disagree with you are not just idiots or evil? Because, by the way, that's what the research says we think now. The people who disagree with us, even if they are people of faith, that's not who we're called to be. And what would it look like if you actually allowed the Holy Spirit to make you less certain and more curious and to allow the Scripture and the Spirit and others to challenge us to repentance? That was not meant to be like that, but I think it might be God. 
Because I wonder if we're invited to pray the prayer of the Psalms. God, create in me a clean heart. Show me how to walk in your truth. Let's pray. God, I just want to confess today, and I suspect there are others with me, that it is so easy to get wrapped up into the lie that I am always right and that I see everything perfectly. And to move from a place of searching out truth in your word and beginning to assume I am God. Forgive me. Forgive us. Forgive us for the ways we join the culture. Forgive us for the ways that we allow our sense of being right to justify a verbal violence towards each other. God, Would you make us a people who stand with conviction, but who stand with humility? God, there was a right and a wrong in this moment. In this story, it was true that you had come and that you had, in fact, fulfilled the promises and made it bigger, God. There was a right in this passage. And if the freedmen had been just willing to be open to the possibility that you were doing a new thing, if they had been teachable, if they had been willing to be soft-hearted, they could have seen it. Because that's your heart and your desire. God, you don't long that we should perish. You want us to be open. And so, God, would you make us, help us, Slow us down and make us open to the correction of others and the correction of your word. May we align ourselves not with power, not with pride, not with ego, not with fear, but with you, Jesus. Only you. And all God's people said, amen. Would you stand and we're going to sing our